Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Nadine, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. You have an uh, amazing background, but I'm interested in the conversation that we're going to be having today about free speech. But could you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yes. Thank you so much for hosting me, Robbie, and for your important podcast. My name is Nadine Strassen. I am a professor of law emerita at New York Law School. I'm the past national president of the American Civil Liberties Union, which I had the honor of heading for 18 years. I took emeritus status from teaching at the end of 2019 so that I could become a full-time crusader for free speech, which I see as being increasingly embattled from both ends of the ideological spectrum. And since I see free speech as being the essential prerequisite for all other human rights, including equality and dignity and diversity and inclusivity, which are so important. Um, I thought the most uh, essential thing I could do with my time would be to write and speak full time about these issues. I've written two books on point uh, in that period, and uh, hopefully you'll be asking me some follow-up questions about those, Ravi. And I am therefore so grateful for the opportunity to um, educate uh, and hopefully educate, inform, inspire, and engage with you and your audience about this very, very significant topic. If you could, could you show up both your books um, just for everybody out there uh, that's watching and listening? Um, if you want to share them up right now, I mean, I want to talk about the book Hate because I think that's the one I came across um, with your work because you talk about hate speech and you're talking about fighting it or resisting it with free speech. And it's interesting to me. I mean, have you noticed that a lot of people like either my age, your age, any other people out there that would be either professors or academics are not pro free speech, at least from my experience, they are limited. Sometimes academics are censored for sure, but I've just noticed that I guess what they're conflating with the idea of wanting free speech to be hate speech and it's like doesn't mean people want to have the right to say hateful things. It just means people sometimes, I don't know, get labeled as what they're saying is hate speech when really they're not saying anything really hateful at all. Yes. So thank you. I will show you both of my uh, books that I've written since 2018. Uh, I'll say a few words about those and then I'll answer your, your very provocative question. So um, in reverse chronological order, um, my new book, which just came out a couple of months ago, is called Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's a trademark, you can see a little R there for the registered trade name that Oxford University Press has trademarked this What Everyone Needs to Know series, uh, which is written by experts, but hopefully not for experts, but for a general audience about important topics. And it's done in question and answer format, um, which I found very conducive because since I published my prior book in 2018, Robbie, I have been doing nothing but speaking full time. Uh, often in, online, but very often in person as well, not only all over the United States, but all over the world, the interest in and the controversies about free speech and censorship are truly worldwide in nature. And the concerns and the attacks are coming from people 
all across the ideological spectrum from left to right. Uh, the really only difference is which censorship they support and which free speech they support. Uh, and that varies depending on what their, their political views are. Those of us who uh, support free speech often uh, comment that most people, and, and I say this with great respect, I, I understand where the impetus comes from, that most people tend to support freedom of speech for me or people who agree with me, but not for thee. And the lesson that we have learned from the history of censorship efforts is you can never confine the censorial power only to speech that you dislike. And therefore, if you want to have freedom of speech for ideas that you cherish, uh, you need to also recognize that it has to extend to ideas that you despise. Uh, some of us call that the golden rule of free speech, that if you want to have freedom for ideas you love, you must defend freedom for ideas you loathe. And that brings me to my earlier book, which you kindly referenced, um, and it's called Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And please note that the only verb in that title is resist. My overall message is how do we resist hatred? Um, how do we promote equality, dignity, diversity, inclusivity, belonging for everyone? As a lifelong human rights crusader, uh, I was for almost 20 years the head of the American Civil Liberties Union. I was very active in, I have been very active in Human Rights Watch. You know, I am completely committed to full and equal human rights across the board for everyone, no matter who you are and no matter what you believe. But I have increasingly come to understand that we cannot have meaningful human rights, meaningful equal rights, meaningful civil rights, unless we have an extremely robust system of free speech, that no matter how appealing it may sound to censor hateful ideas, giving the government that power inevitably ends up doing more harm than good. Are you basing a lot of that off of the historical past of what the government has done when it comes to, let's take things like COINTELPRO or programs that were kind of in effect to really cancel out? I would call them left-wing movements, um, social movements, counterculture, everything like that to do to suppress their voice when really they were just speaking out about things they didn't like, like the Vietnam War and other things. When you look at the history of censorship in the United States, Robbie, and let me interject that we did not have robust free speech in reality in this country until the second half of the 20th century. Yes, the First Amendment with its free speech guarantee was ratified in 1791, but no provision in the Constitution, including the First Amendment free speech guarantee, no provision is self-executing. Government officials can violate these rights with impunity unless there is pushback. And, you know, the Supreme Court can't just reach out and protect people from government violations. Somebody has to represent the person whose rights are violated, the person whose right and bring a lawsuit. The person whose rights are violated has to have the information 
to know what their rights are, the resources to reach out to an organization or a lawyer who can represent them. And that's precisely why at the beginning of the 20th century in the US, we had the formation of organizations such as the ACLU, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, to try to finally put real meaning on the equality guarantee and the free speech guarantee in our constitution. Uh, and it's no coincidence that the Supreme Court began to finally strongly enforce both equal rights and free speech rights and other First Amendment rights, freedom of the press, freedom of association, in the context of the mid 20th century civil rights movement, because that was just the latest movement for human rights that was being suppressed by censorship. I mean, blatant censorship of peaceful protesters, demonstrators of the Northern media, the national media that was trying to cover the civil rights movement was subject to really punitive um, uh, defamation lawsuits that impose ruinously high damages upon them in order to discourage them from covering the movement, which was really essential for getting national attention and support. Um, as you say, there was government surveillance of people who were um, protesting for civil rights, which was intended to and had the effect of chilling them you know, deterring them from participating in the movement. Southern states were actually seeking membership lists of the NAACP at a time when it was a, such a controversial organization in the South that if it became known that you were a member or a supporter, you were, you were likely to lose your job, you were likely to face physical intimidation and violence. So if the Supreme Court had not struck down all of these sensorial measures, the civil rights movement would not have taken off. And many, and that's why all of the leaders of that movement opposed any censorship, including censorship of hate speech, because they knew that those laws, since hate is such a subjective concept, right? that those laws would be enforced disproportionately against them. And I tell you, Robbie, when you read the earlier cases, that came from the Supreme Courts in Southern states, they actually say that to have black and white people, the term they used at the time was Negro people with white people demonstrating together and singing a song whose words are black and white together. They said, that is hateful, that is dangerous, that's emotionally traumatizing, that's violence. And those are exactly the stigmatizing terms that today's college students use against pro-racist speech, right? And I think they would be shocked to learn that the very same rhetoric has been used against anti-racist speech. So we, we have to recognize that, you know, these concepts are so subjective. And if we give to powerful institutions in society uh, the prerogative of making their determination, about what is considered to be hateful or dangerous, they're not gonna use it in ways 
that are favorable to those who are dissidents, who are seeking reform, who are uh, seeking to advance human rights. I think the most famous statement that came out of the civil rights movement expressing this idea was John Lewis, the great, um, he was a student activist for civil rights and then became a longtime member of Congress from Georgia, a black uh, person. And he said, um, without freedom of speech, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. The same is true for the women's suffrage movement earlier in our history for the abolition movement, um, the great abolitionist order and in formerly enslaved individual Frederick Douglass said, slavery cannot abide free speech. Five years of its exercise would banish the auction block and break every chain in the South. The same thing is true of the uh, movement for LGBTQ rights. You know, leaders, lifelong leaders of that movement have said that of all the constitutional rights uh, that have supported their movement, by far the most essential was freedom of speech. For the labor rights movement, the women's rights movement, reproductive freedom, the list goes on. None of those causes could be advanced without free speech. Do you believe the censorship issue is still the same censorship issue that was back in the day? Because I don't think it's the same. I think now you have people governing other people now. Oh, it, that's always been the case, Robin. Thank you so much for saying that, because um, I will say to your audience what you clearly know, and but many people do not, which is that the First Amendment free speech guarantee only protects us against government censorship. It doesn't do anything about private sector powerful forces that can and do suppress free speech. It's a problem today, as you rightly signal, but it has always been a problem. Uh, in the early 19th century, when the United States was visited by um, Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote his famous book, Democracy in America, he flagged that as a real concern. He said, you know, for all of the advantages of popular sovereignty, where we, the people, to quote the opening words in our constitution, wield the sovereign power. He said the downside is that the populace, uh, populism can have a speech suppressive impact. People are going to be afraid to speak, not because they're afraid that government officials are going to punish them, but because they're afraid of the negative opinion and the social ostracism and adverse social and economic consequences that can be visited upon them by their fellow citizens. Even earlier in 1859, when John Stuart Mill wrote his classic work on liberty, which I continue to believe is the most powerful defense of free speech principles um, and the most famous one. John Stuart Mill says right at the beginning of that essay, I'm not so concerned about government power. I am concerned about peer pressure, about social pressure, about the silencing and chilling and deterrent impact that can have on free speech. Today, everything is amplified through the power of social media. It's much easier 
for individuals acting in our individual capacity to band together with others to form social media mobs that can have a dramatically speech suppressive impact on our fellow citizens. So, you know, and what makes this very complicated, Robbie, is, you know, I'm advocating counter speech, right? You don't like a message, you think it's hateful, don't ask the government to censor, speak up yourself and criticize it. But the problem is, and this is a matter of degree of judgment of, we lawyers often talk about the delicate balance. Sometimes counter speech can go too far, right? When too many people become too afraid to even address certain topics or to raise certain perspectives for fear that they are going to be accused of being a racist or a transphobe or some kind of ist or some kind of obe uh, and, and can't afford that because it can result in losing jobs, it can result in being suspended from school, it can result in social isolation. So we have to be very careful to exercise our free speech rights to criticize um, in a way that is not unduly harsh, unduly punitive, if we want to have a free speech culture and not a cancel culture. This might be on a side that we both don't agree on, but when it comes to the pro-censorship, the people that want to support, which I've come probably in contact with more people that are pro-censorship than I have that people that are pro-free speech, only because I guess the things that they're trying to censor happen to be things that agree with their political ideology. So it makes me question, I mean, is it all just on the basis of people's political notions or how they actually feel? To me, censoring somebody, what you'd call hate speech, I mean, if a comedian cracks a joke and it's an offensive joke or if it's an anti-gay joke or something, but everybody laughs... Does that mean that we should cancel that comedian? It, you know, it's it's a it's a tricky question because I think if society, if we don't laugh, then he has to evolve and get better jokes, right? So he actually grows on the inside, not so much being pissed off that someone got him canceled for some LGBTQ joke or something of that sort. And it's a dumb example, but it's it, there's it's a lot of truth to it. It's a very important one because I think it's very complicated. I remember when I was like. 13 years old, I had, no, maybe 14. Uh, uh, so 18 Dan years ago, okay. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, I had a teacher who was telling the class the story of Oedipus. And um, in the final scene, when Oedipus dashes out his eyes, the teacher who was also the drama coach for the school um, said that the reaction of the audience is often to laugh. And that was the first time I encountered um, the phenomenon, which is very common, of laughing not because you find something funny or amusing or entertaining, but you find it shocking. And laughter can actually be a, uh, a, a reaction to, to shock. And I've now experienced that in real life. And I think that's part of the humor is that it is it is mocking um, hateful or discriminatory ideas and stereotypes. And mocking is, you know, by making us laugh at it, laugh at the absurdity, laugh at the shock value, um, and, and that it should not be seen as endorsing the ideas, right? So it's a little bit in the genre of satire. We have gotten to a point where so many people take everything so literally. 
they're not able to divorce a particular word or a particular concept from its overall context. What is the intent of the speaker? What is the goal of the speaker? What's the actual impact? And so one example is the so-called, I'm not even going to use its euphemism, but let's say the most offensive racial epithet. And the reason I'm not going to use the euphemism is that a law professor several years ago was fired for using the euphemism. You know, they blanked out, you use the first initial of the word and you say the initial dash word. And um, in a very legitimate context, it came from a real case where the use of that word was a critical piece of evidence in showing an discriminatory intent in order to make a claim of racial employment discrimination. Um, and the professor still got suspended. So, to, you know, to me, that is the classic example of, and there are so many others, you know, people who are objecting to students who are objecting and faculty members who are objecting to the teaching of um, Supreme Court decisions that describe the social reality at the time, the legal reality at the time of discrimination on the basis of race. Martin Luther King's historic and eloquent letter from a Birmingham jail where he uses that uses that racist epithet two times. Of course, not in an endorsing fashion, but in a way to highlight the um, the ugliness of Jim Crow. But none of that matters, right? We've lost the ability to take into account uh, the overall context. And I think um, comedy is has always been throughout history an extremely effective way to speak truth to power. Um, and the, you have to go beyond the overt message to see the the underlying message. Now, if I can make one really important point that I haven't had a chance to make yet, Robbie, and that is that a lot of hateful and other controversial speech is completely appropriately um, censored, consistent with the First Amendment. The What the First Amendment does prohibit is censoring or punishing an idea solely because of disagreement with or disapproval of its viewpoint. And this is often called the content neutrality principle or the viewpoint neutrality principle. Uh, no matter how loathsome or otherwise controversial or despised the, the content, the message, the viewpoint, the idea, that alone is never a justification for government censorship. But when you get beyond the content and you look at the speech in its overall context, government may and should punish it when in the facts and circumstances, the speech directly, imminently causes certain specific serious harm other than I don't like the message. And the Supreme Court has recognized several categories of speech that satisfy this contextual um, standard, which is often called the emergency standard, right? The speech directly and imminently threatens uh, certain harm. It's uh, It poses an emergency. And so one example is intentional incitement of imminent violence that's likely to happen imminently. Another example is targeted harassment or bullying. Uh, another example is uh, a 
what the law calls a true threat, where the speaker, it, again, targets an individual or small group of individuals and intends to instill a reasonable fear, an objective fear that they're going to be subject to violence that can and should be punished. So when you come down to it, people think of hate speech. I think, you know, at least 90% of the time, if not more, they're thinking of a targeted racist epithet that one person hurls at another. That's already unprotected under American law. Um, what is protected is if one is just making a general speech, not targeting a particular individual, then you can voice an odious idea. And the response of the audience is either to ignore it, right? You know, deprive it of the oxygen that its speakers are seeking or refute it or, you know, persuade people not to believe it. In other words, use your powers of free speech to overcome it. Why do you think people are so willing to give up their not the, not not their rights, but put their trust in the government when it comes to censoring speech? I mean, I don't. I, don't, we, it, I, it don't, I really don't understand that. Um, I think I and I to say this not at all in a patronizing way, um, because it, I understand the common sense appeal. Right? If somebody is saying something ugly and antithetical to your own values. It makes so much sense to say they shouldn't be allowed to say that, right? And it's only if you think through the longer range consequences. Well, what are the standards going to be? How how do you define the speech that's dangerous? Uh, can we possibly come up with such a specific definition that it's not going to endanger speech that we agree with? You look at how these standards have been forced or throughout history and around the world, and you start to see that uh, for all of the dangers of the you know speech protection that we have. So let me let me let me back up by saying, I and much more importantly, the Supreme Court, uh, which unanimously has endorsed the principles that I'm talking about, for all of the other disagreements among the justices from the from 1969 on, every single justice has agreed with these basic principles. And I often ask myself, why is that true? Why are they so strongly in support of freedom for hate speech and you know extremist speech and terrorist speech and disinformation, all these other kinds of controversial speech that um, substantial members of, of percentages of the public want to suppress? What's the distinction? between the justices and the general public. And one clear answer is that the justices have legal education. They understand what the free speech principles are. They understand the history that gave rise to them. They understand the consequences of not enforcing them today. And I really came through my extensive experience, Robbie, every time uh, I've spoken with people who think that they're opposed to free speech, um, they have a very different view when they understand what the free speech principles actually are, what they and when they understand the consequences of giving the government more power actually are through actual examples, uh, some of which I've I've given you today. And so, you know, I've always separated my role as an educator, constitutional law professor from my role as an advocate advocating for free speech. But the two really overlap because the more information people have 
about free speech, for example, that it's not absolute, that it really does allow government to punish the speech that's the most dangerous while restricting the government from the censorship that's the most dangerous, the more sympathetic uh, people become. So that's why I'm a full-time evangelist. Does that make it more difficult, though? Because as much as society evolves, we do become a little bit more sensitive in some of our actions. And if it's not solidified in a sense of here's a clear outline of you cannot spray paint something on somebody's door that does not count as free speech. That's a solidified line to me. But then if you start talking about like you crack a joke on something and someone takes it the wrong way, next thing you know, you're getting locked up because it can be seen as a threat or it can be seen as something of that sort. And that's just government overreach. I mean, not too long ago, they wanted to create a disinformation board. Now, it, it was pandemic related, whatever your thoughts are, and it doesn't matter about that. But it's there's nobody in the world that should be in charge of trying to create what should and should not be said, because it always goes bad. I mean, one can predict in a democratic society where our elected representatives are appropriately accountable to the majority of their constituents that uh, whoever wields majority power in a particular community or on a particular issue is likely going to use the sensorial power against any critical views, against any dissident views. And especially when you're talking about scientific matters such as um, causes of and uh, uh, cures for disease, uh, including COVID, the whole scientific method embodies robust freedom of speech, right? That every idea is subject to criticism, to debate, to refutation. And if that doesn't happen, we are not only deprived of free speech, but we're deprived of the most effective engine for ascertaining truth and what is the most effective uh, remedy for what, you know, what is the most uh, powerful explanation for what caused it and and how can we best remediate it. And I think the proof is in in uh, what we've observed, as, as you allude to, that uh, I can't say that on YouTube. Can't say that on YouTube. Sorry. Uh, that's where the free speech kind of goes out the window with YouTube. I just had a video flagged for talking about um. It's fine. Look, we don't let's not get into that. But there is a serious thing. And one of the unintended consequences you mentioned before about in, in effect, something that happens that is kind of a product of society. What happens to society when it comes to this danger of the chopping block when it comes to free speech in my mind is self-censorship there becomes a really just like we just did there becomes a really big issue when things aren't necessarily enforced by the government but in people kind of know what the rules are they know what to dance around they educated themselves on that and it starts happening in conversations i think in some part it's good someone might not crack a joke when they know this is not what type of joke you do right here this is something you know if you're going to say it don't do it in, like in public it's a terrible joke but then there's things where people have an opinion about something, but they're afraid that they're going to lose everything if they bother speaking about it. And I don't think that's necessarily honesty of the person. And I don't think that's what society really wants if they want change. I want change, but I want people to actually like if someone tells me how they really feel, I go, at least I know where you stand. Exactly. But, yeah. I mean, that if nothing else, that's the virtue of, of truth. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why censoring hateful speech does more harm than good. If somebody actually has a hateful, discriminatory attitude, I think it's better to know about it than not to know about it. Because if you know about it, you first of all, you can 
Um, you can try to persuade the person that their ideas are wrong. Secondly, you can monitor them. And even more importantly, law enforcement can monitor them to make sure that they're not conspiring with other like-minded people uh, to plan some actual discriminatory violent conduct. Um, and, you know, there have been very, I truly am concerned about reducing hatred and stereotyping and discrimination of every sort. That's my overall life's mission, including discrimination on the basis of your ideas and your beliefs. I, you know, that to me is as important as reducing discrimination based on your identity factors. Uh, each should be equally irrelevant in terms of our entitlement to full belonging and participation as individuals and as members, citizens in our democratic republic. Um, but we can't engage, the, the most uh, compelling narratives of people who have been members and even leaders of hateful organizations of white supremacist and other discriminatory organizations, many of them have been, and the term that they often use is redeemed from those ideas, certainly not by treating being treated as criminals, as happens in Europe and Canada and Australia and so forth, certainly not by being shamed and shunned and ostracized as happens through so-called cancel culture in this country, but conversely by tr being treated empathetically and respectfully by other people who reached out to them and encourage them to re-examine their ideas, not even in a preachy, indoctrinating fashion, but just in a sympathetic, questioning fashion. And many of these former hate mongers have written memoirs, have done TED Talks, um, uh, have done interviews that I find really fascinating. And there's this consistent pattern that they are treated respectfully. Their ideas aren't treated respectfully, that, but people lead them to re-examine their ideas. So let me give just, just one example, and there are many. Uh, and let me just say, you know, in case you or others are interested in pursuing some of the others, um, many of them have uh, banded together to form organizations, one of which is called Life After Hate. It's based in Chicago, and it's completely consisting of former leaders of discriminatory organizations that have redeemed themselves and are dedicating their lives to reaching out to others that are still either members or leaders of hateful organizations or are flirting with, with joining them to provide them uh, the sympathetic support for disengaging. But so one, just one example I could cite of many is Megan Phelps Roper, who was a leader of the Westboro Baptist Church, whose uh, website and motto uh, says it all. This is a trigger warning. It's, but it's been in the Supreme Court opinion because the case went to the Supreme Court about their free speech rights. Uh, but their website is www.godhatesfags.org. Now, the Westboro Baptist Church is a family-centered organization. It was founded by Megan's grandfather. She grew up completely in a family enclave that were members of the church that demonstrated constantly. Um, there was a period when they were regularly demonstrating outside funerals of members of the U.S. military who had been slain in Iraq 
and Afghanistan because the church thought that it was because um, the United States is too protective of LGBTQ rights, that um, that's why we were losing wars and our um, members of our military were getting killed. So Megan basically spent her whole life in this family with these beliefs. When she was in her early 20s, she the family assigned her to go on Twitter as a younger person familiar with social media uh, to try to recruit members to the church. And in fact, exactly the opposite happened. She was reached out to by other people who strongly disagreed with the church's interpretation of the Bible verses that they thought uh, condemned gay people and, and, and just patiently asked her to consider possible other interpretations of those Bible verses. Uh, one of the key people, this is the beauty of the internet, was an Orthodox rabbi from uh, Israel who was, you know, sort of doing a, a rabbinic um, discussion with her about different interpretations of these verses. And she wrote a very compelling memoir called Loving, uh, Unfollowing, Loving and Leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. And to make a very long story short, she ultimately came to completely repudiate her lifelong views, those of her entire family. And when you consider how extraordinary a break this is, she was giving up her entire world, her entire family, which was with, and she had no external life other than the family. It was her, her family as well as her political engagement. She went out into the world believing that everybody hated her because of the hateful ideas she had been espousing, and yet she felt she had no choice and that she's dedicating the rest of her life to trying to repair some of the damage that she and her family members had done. And I cite all of that as just one example of the, the benefits of free speech that in reducing uh, hatred and counteracting it in the future which I don't think censorship has any chance of, of accomplishing. What about labels? Calling someone a conspiracy theorist, calling someone a misinformation spreader, calling someone a racist, calling someone a bigot, calling someone any of these types of words that get tossed out that I don't think people even really understand the meaning behind what they're using just with a broad brush. It reminds me a lot of communism back in the day. It was kind of painted on everything and people just wipe their hands with it. Like, go ahead, let the government take care of you. It's like similar to calling someone a terrorist. You know? Exactly. And it's the uh, the purpose is to shut down debate rather than to um, promote it. So of course I def I hope it's obvious that I would defend somebody's right to call somebody else a racist or a terrorist or a communist. I would oppose government you know punishment of that kind of speech, even if it's inaccurate uh, and defamatory. That's protected free speech, but. The fact that you have a right to say something doesn't mean that it is right to do so. And one of the things that I find so frustrating about um, all of these topics, Robbie, is that as a free speech advocate and as an educator, I want to have more debate, more dissent, more discussion, more discourse, the more robust, the better, the more different perspectives, the better, but shouting or even saying conclusory one word, you know, labels uh, is not a way to promote discourse. It has exactly the opposite impact because if you are labeled a racist, that is intended to 
and does suppress your speech. In fact, it preemptively does so because you avoid saying anything that might provoke anybody to call you a racist, right? And that's why when we see survey after survey in this country consistently shows that people are engaging in massive self-censorship, not addressing the most controversial and therefore the most important public policy issues, including not only matters of race and gender, but also abortion, police practices, immigration, you know, exactly the kind of public policy issues where we know people are deeply divided and hungering for some kind of negotiated resolution uh, to various issues, but that cannot be accomplished if we can't candidly and frankly express our views. Fire, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, together with College Pulse for quite a few years now, has been doing extensive annual surveys of the free speech, or I should say lack of free speech climate on college and university campuses around the country. And it's really sad because if you would expect any enclave for free and open and vigorous debate about these important issues, it should be on our campuses, right? Uh, but sadly, that's not the case. The most recent survey just came out a couple months ago. It was of 248 campuses. And FIRE found that, and College Pulse found that on a substantial plurality, about 40% of these campuses, um, students, I'm sorry, on 100% of the campuses, about 40% of students said that they cannot have frank and candid conversations about abortion, that was the most fraught topic about gun control. Uh, that was the second most. And then immigration, police practices, um, uh, uh, gender issues, transgender issues, and racial issues. And that's such a sad commentary, which is so bad, not only for the pursuit of the truth but also and for individual liberty, but also for democratic self-government. It's weird because then it gets into a position where people want to try and trap an individual and maybe if they have a separate belief. And I mean, that's on both sides. That's just that's not strictly a, uh, you know, LGBTQ thing. I'm not against that. I'm not against gays. I honestly don't care what you want to do. As long as you're not shoving it in my face, it's fine. Like, I'm just I just want to go and make sure I can get to work and get home. That's all I want to do. Um, but for a lot of people, they feel like they need to kind of find out that injustice. And I understand it. I think through my conversations, I've talked to a lot more left-leaning people, and I probably developed more of a sensor for myself. I'd be like, oh, he can, like some a friend of mine will say something as a joke, and I'm like, in my mind, I tense up a little bit just because I know so much about history and so much that has happened wrongfully. And it makes me kind of want to, you know, but I realize they don't know. And then what do I say then? Do I yell at them? Hey, don't say that. Do I say something like this? So I have to ask, what groups are attracted the most to you, like political wise? Are they Republicans, conservatives, liberals, progressives? I would say, you know, I have all my life, which is quite long now, been defending free speech and intellectual freedom and civil discourse. Let's say the classic enlightenment liberal with a small L values from attacks across the ideological spectrum. Um, the only difference between left and right has been which ideas they consider offensive and therefore subject to censorship. 
Um, the main difference, so people now say, oh, but isn't this, you know, the greatest um, uh, opposition to free speech you've ever seen, especially from the left? And I have to say, no, it, it really isn't. And I can go decade by decade throughout my adult lifetime and give examples of uh, the speech that the left sought to censor and the speech that the right sought to censor. But throughout all of that, there are a number of organizations whose mission is to neutrally defend freedom the same way that the Supreme Court itself does, regardless of viewpoint, regardless of who the speaker is, regardless of whose ox is gored in the particular case, recognizing that what you're defending are neutral principles that in another factual context are going to redound to the benefit of exactly the opposite ideas. And that classically has been the mission of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. In the 1990s, FIRE was founded um, completely collaboratively with the ACLU. One of the um, two co-founders of FIRE was and continues to be an active leader of the ACLU. But recognizing that we were seeing a crisis on college campuses in particular of hate speech codes. Uh, the ACLU brought the lawsuits that successfully challenged the first hate speech codes, but they still were proliferating around the country and it became clear that the ACLU didn't have the resources to dedicate specifically to campus. So from the beginning, I, I very strongly supported FIRE, which was until two years ago, stood for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And that is still its overall, uh, you know, a very important mission, but now it's also doing work beyond campus. So FIRE is still neutrally defending freedom for all speech across the ideological spectrum. The National Coalition Against Censorship, um, of which the ACLU was one of the founding members, it's about to have its 50th anniversary, um, continues to be ideologically neutral. Uh, and then other sort of professional organizations, such as the American Library Association, journalist organizations, booksellers uh, organizations, the American Association of University Professors, in other words, uh, professionals who are working in the free speech trenches uh, tend to support these neutral principles. That said, Robbie, um, in, there are demographic differences, as you alluded to earlier. And surveys do show that younger generations consistently, even in the professions and the organizations that have traditionally supported free speech, um, are less supportive in younger generations. And I don't say that at all disparagingly. You know, I think it's the the obligation uh, even of younger people to question what went before them and to see if they can improve on it, which is why I always welcome the opportunity to answer the strongest arguments that people can make against free speech. The very first chapter in this book it's is free speech fundamentals. Um, yeah, free speech, what everyone needs to know. The very first substantive chapter is what are the 12 strongest arguments against free speech and what are the strongest answers you can make? And as I say at the beginning, I, I to me, this is a dialogue. I want people to push back. I don't want anything to be a matter of indoctrination or rote recitation. I want people to grapple with the ideas, including myself. Um, I have this, some from a distance, some people might think it's a MAGA hat, 
Uh, but instead of saying make America great again, it says make John Stuart Mill great again. And I already alluded to John Stuart Mill's famous essay from 1859 on liberty as the greatest defense of free speech. And one of the points that he makes is that um, no matter how strongly you cherish an idea, indeed, the more strongly you cherish an idea, the more it should be subject to questioning, to debate, to second guessing. And he explains logically there are only three uh, possible results from re-examining even the most tried and true idea, even the one that you hold the most deeply. Number one, on re-examination, you may conclude that it was wrong. You know, a lot, most ideas throughout history have been proven to be wrong, even after being held for millennia, right? Um, one saying is, I can't remember who said it, some philosopher, Every great truth began as a blasphemy, right? The earth rotates, the sun rotates around the earth and so forth. Um, uh, the second possibility is that, and of course, it's a great benefit to be proven wrong if it brings you closer to the truth, which should be the goal for all of us. A second possibility of re-examination is so you won't completely repudiate your prior idea, but you will refine it. You will amend it. I think that really has happened to me with my re-examination of free speech. I, to this day, continue to support the fundamental principles, but with a slightly different emphasis than I had before the re-examination, which, uh, you know, in a nutshell, I, I believe it's not enough just to keep government's hands off us. I think we really have to uh, take a more proactive uh, approach in through education, through technology, uh, to make free speech meaningfully available and actually subject to exercise by every member of our society. Number three, the third logical possibility is upon re-examination, you will completely lock, stock, and barrel reaffirm your prior positions. But the benefit there is you do so with deepened and enriched understanding you understand the nuances and the complexities, which means that you hold it more firmly and you can explain it more persuasively to other people. You're not just rotely reciting it as a dead dogma, but it has real living meaning and vibrancy for you. What do you think the future for free speech is going to look like in maybe five, 10 years? So you've seen it drastically change over, at least my lifetime has drastically changed. Seems like, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm more aware of it because I'm older, but it just seems like with technology has really put it in not only the hands of the people anymore, not only the hands of the government, but left it up to just private institutions that have somehow influenced most of society. I mean, they're giant monoliths today, and I don't think they're necessarily choosing it out of the rightness of what's actually right and wrong, they're more choosing it on what they like or what they feel politically is best for them. And I think that kind of skews the conversation. Leftists in the beginning, I believe, were more censored. But I think now at this point, it's showing a different turnaround. I've talked to more conservatives, and I don't have a political belief. I honestly think it's all stupid to have an ideology like that. But I've noticed it more and I have looked through Cell Pro papers. I have looked through a lot of the historical stuff of the 60s and 70s, J. Edgar Hoover, all of that. 
to just be able to give my opinion that from what I see from reading YouTube's guidelines now, a lot of things that would be considered right wing is the stuff that they're banning. And I don't necessarily think it's right wing at all. I think it's just asking some certain things are just questions. Yeah, you raise really good questions. And I would have to say from the long view, which is not only a longer life than yours, but even more importantly, you know, long view having read a lot about the history of free speech and censorship. Um, I think, the, you know, that old saying, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. Although the specific factual details obviously change and evolve, the very same really important concerns that you are raising, Robbie, have understandably been raised throughout history. I mean, when the printing press was developed, the, those who had the printing presses were enormously powerful, right? Until as recently as the first half of the 20th century, uh, a famous journalist in the United States famously quipped that freedom of the press belongs to he who was rich enough to own one because very few people did. Uh, and there was real concern then with TV and the incredible power that came with having a coveted broadcast license. You know, for all of the centralized gatekeeping functions that YouTube and um, powerful other powerful social media platforms have, if we take the long view, pull the camera back, let's not forget the other dimension of online media, including social media, which is we have a historically unfathomably unprecedented free speech explosion. Virtually every single person in the world who can afford a, a you know a, a, a telephone or can borrow one from somebody has access to virtually every single other person in the world. This is just unprecedented free speech in a practical matter and as a practical matter. And in fact, uh, it has empowered social movements um, of individuals and groups that prior to the online era just could not get traction. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, many um, political candidates, including women and young people and LGBTQ people and immigrants and religious minorities, you know, who in the past had to raise humongous sums of money to get access to broadcast advertising have been able to um, to run for office and to get elected. And we tend to take the positive aspects of the new media for granted and to, to focus on the negative. So let's not lose sight of the positive. And I think the, the net um, outcome for free speech is definitely in the positive side of the ledger. It's not enough. And I completely agree with you that we have to do what we can uh, to counter the power of YouTube to stop you and me from talking about scientific breakthroughs that are essential for promoting human health and well-being. Um, but you know, let's keep a in a historical perspective. We're a lot better off now than we were uh, before the rise of social media. 
Well, Nadine, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? If you have any social media handles you'd like to promote, any book links, and I'll make sure I link it in the description as well. Thank you so much. Please just link to my um, faculty webpage, and um, I can send you via email some links to some of my my books and writings. I I actually answer emails. And I don't use social media. That's my own personal choice uh, because I prefer a more individualized communication. I do too. That's why I don't like going through assistants sometimes. I'll, I'll that one. That'll be a stop for me. I was like, well, you got to get to know me as we're about to have a conversation for an hour. I like to get you to know. Yeah, you want to have that communication. But no, Nadine, I'm going to link all your links in the description. I do appreciate the time of having this conversation. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Battle Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.